Hello, welcome to the special interest group, the vestibular special interest group of the neurology section of the APTA's monthly podcast. My name is Wendy Kriegels, and I'm on faculty at the University of Colorado at Denver. And today's topic is Malda debarkment syndrome. And we have Kenda Fuller, also from Denver, on the line, um, and we'll have a question and answer session. Kenda, can you introduce yourself, please? Um, yes, I'm Kenda Fuller. I'm a physical therapist um, in a private practice with treating primarily patients with neurologic disorders, and we treat a very high population of patients with um, complaints of dizziness and imbalance at South Valley Physical Therapy. Excellent. Thank you so much for joining us today. And um, we'll get started with um, our first question. Um, actually, just give us a brief description of Malda debarkment syndrome and how it typically presents. Well, Malda debarkment um, essentially means um, a bad response to getting off of a boat. And the hallmark of Malda debarkment is that it comes after a long exposure, usually a cruise along airline flight where there's a fair amount of turbulence, um, sometimes along um, a train ride. We don't see that so much in the U.S., but they certainly see it in Europe, where the individual does not feel dizzy while they're uh, on the boat or in the airplane. So they don't have motion sickness or air sickness. But what happens is when they return to the shore or to the land, they have essentially what they call land sickness, which means that when the feet are back on a firm surface, the person begins to experience a rocking sensation or a tilting um, sensation that makes them very uncomfortable. And typically, you'll have that for a short period of time Mm -hmm. after any kind of activity like that, running on a treadmill, roller skating, um, skiing. In Colorado, we have that after a day of hard skiing, but it goes away within 20 minutes to two hours. With maldated barkmont, the symptoms can last for up to, uh, on average, between six months and ten years. So people still have this persistent sense of rocking, notice most, mostly when they're sitting still or standing still, when they're moving or in a car or back with their head in motion, then the symptoms actually um, decline a bit. Hmm. Interesting. So when you see these individuals in the clinic, when they come to you, what are some of the first things you assess? Well, the first thing that we do in our clinic is look at a uh, history. So we, if someone says that this started after um, a boat uh, cruise or some sort of activity that would trigger maladaptive barkment, we start thinking about that. But it usually shows up when we have someone sit in a chair with their eyes closed. So they're essentially using their vestibular mechanism and their somatosensory mechanism together without their vision to kind of make any other corrections, these patients will often tell us that they 
feel like they're rocking side to side or they're, they're tilting forwards and backwards. They don't describe rotation, um, which you might typically see with somebody who has a uncompensated um, or acute vestibular lesion. Mm -hmm. and, and, and in reality, if the patient comes to you with a VNG that's been done, it's usually normal or, mm -hmm. or subclinical. They have subclinical findings when they test the vestibular system. So it's essentially a normal vestibular response, which is the other reason why we're probably not having people report rotation, but more of a rocking sensation. Mm -hmm. And in your experience, do you have physicians that typically diagnose this, or are you really the one giving sort of a clinical diagnosis of this? Well, it depends on who the patient is coming from. If it's coming from a from the the group that we typically work with, then they will often assign a diagnosis. Mm -hmm. um, you have to be careful with that because sometimes people are diagnosed with maldite Barkmont and that really isn't the problem that they have. Mm -hmm. So we see it, we probably, it comes to our office diagnosed maybe 30 to 40 percent of the time. Mm -hmm. And do you have any difficulty finding um, standard examination tools um, for this population? For example, do you use the dizziness handicap inventory and still find that that's beneficial? Well, we do use the dizziness handicap inventory and um, because we use that on every patient who comes into our clinic, that's our standard baseline for anyone who has a complaint of either dizziness or imbalance. Mm -hmm. What we find in in the uh, description of this is that they don't have the typical things that you would expect for other vestibular diagnoses. They don't complain of dizziness when looking up. They have no difficulty walking down a sidewalk. They don't complain very much of um, quick head turns, but they do have a very high score um, abnormal score on um, functional and the emotional piece of the dizziness handicap inventory. So mm -hmm. they will tell you that they are pretty disabled and mm -hmm. that they're highly frustrated because they've got this disorder that um, can't be treated or treatment hasn't worked very well. Mm -hmm. so, the, so there isn't I guess the other thing that I would say about examination, when we see this, um, when it comes up in the initial part of our examination, what we look at primarily is the somatosensory system. So if I have someone who I suspect maldi debarkmont with, then I need to take a very careful look at their somatosensation because the problem is with the vestibular system reintegrating to the somatosensory system and in our clinic we actually treat them using the somatosensory system as our um, primary reference. Mm -hmm. So what are a couple of examples of how you assess their somatosensation and that integration between that and the vestibular system? Well, the first thing that we usually look for is um, the efficiency 
of the vibratory response at the ankle. Mm. So we test because the vibratory reference follows the proprioceptive reference up to the brain. Mm. We use a tuning fork at the ankle at where we can get the most um, reference in the malleoli. Mm-hmm. Our tuning fork is at 128 hertz. Mm-hmm. So we hit the tuning fork, put it on the ankle, and ask the individual if they feel it, first of all, and when they stop feeling it. So sometimes what we'll find when we test that either is that they don't feel it as efficiently um, as they do on their arm or their um, thumb knuckle, mm-hmm. that they feel it for less time than we feel it, okay. or that they are so hypersensitive that they feel it longer um, after the point where we don't feel it anymore. So we just describe that then as a somatosensory hypofunction or a hypersensitivity. Okay. And I don't know if I could say statistically whether there's more hypofunction or hypersensitivity, except that we find more hypofunction in general in our clinic. Mm -hmm. The second thing that we look at then, because we're looking at the the reference, how the reference moves from the floor up to the vestibular system and from the vestibular system back down um, through the um, somatosensory references to match, we also look very carefully at what's going on at the level of the um, cervical spine. Mm-hmm. So we're, we also look for cervicogenic phenomenon or lack of efficient somatosensory referencing at the neck. Mm-hmm. So what kind and of we activity? Have special tools that we do yeah. for that. At the neck, okay. Um, and then just generally, what's your treatment philosophy around, you know, approaching where you start, how fast you progress, what kind of home exercise program, you know, that kind of thing specifically for this population? Well, I think we do what we do with every patient that comes into the clinic. We look to see um, how persistent the symptoms are, how um, emotionally labile the patient is, um, how how much we can stir them up, mm-hmm. and ha- how good we are at settling them back down during mm-hmm. a treatment session. But typically what I do is, because we almost always find some issue within the somatosensory referencing, mm-hmm. so we start by working... Um, on the somatosensory system to get to try to push that reference back between the vestibular mechanism and the somatosensory system. So we start sitting in a firm chair, eyes closed, to get the visual system out, and then um, add weights to the shoulders, try to increase the somatosensory system as much as we can. We use distracting techniques so that the patient can actually um, use the short-term memory process as short-term memory. So we have them count backwards, use the alphabet, so they're distracted from 
feeling that sensation of rocking. Hmm. One of the things that I think nobody, if you read the literature, nobody clearly understands where this comes from. Mm-hmm. So what we think about it as a processing error. So there is some error in probably at the level of the brain stem where since that's where the vestibular and somatosensory systems get recalibrated, that there's some recalibration error that's there. Mm-hmm. And that's why we take the vision out. Because if you think about it, when somebody's on a boat, they um, will be trying to use their vision along with their vestibular system, and that probably both of those systems get um, overactivated. Mm-hmm. So, so our focus is primarily on getting the somatosensory system and the vestibular system to recalibrate. So we might start with some very basic vestibular exercises as well. Um, Often we'll do something with the single leg or or something where we're, again, trying to isolate the vestibular system without using the somatosensory. So we're working each system individually and then trying to get them to work together. So it's like working two ends toward the middle. Mm-hmm. So settling is is a big um, part both for the patient then to be able to manage their symptoms better and to be able to do any higher level of activity knowing that then they can calm their system back down. So how That's quick, exactly right. So how quickly in general do people like this progress? Is this someone you see five times a week, three times a week, once a week? You know, in I know it, it definitely varies based on the patient presentation, but generally, do they progress quickly or slowly? Well, I think they um, progress slowly mm-hmm. because their um, system is already challenged and there is some sort of a processing error that's already in place. So we can't expect them to recalibrate the same way that we would expect an acute unilateral um, mm-hmm patient, someone who has that disorder. The frequency, I think, really depends on what it is that we're trying to have them do. So if we are just doing settling or we're doing a brief vestibular exercise that we can teach them to do at home, then that's the direction that we go until Mm -hmm. their symptoms, until they can tolerate a little bit more challenge to the system. The other thing that we do in our clinic, because we have a perturbed surface platform, the other way to stimulate the somatosensory system is to move the body very quickly to a short degree. So um, Faye Horak has some very good literature uh, related to this. So if we want to push the somatosensory as the primary reference and the vestibular is the secondary reference. We put them on this platform, move it very quickly, have them close their eyes or distract their visual system in some other way and push that recalibration. And that's very effective. Mm. So we might do that if we're doing that. We might do that once, twice, three times a week. We are an outpatient clinic in the middle of a, Um, large metropolitan area, 
also getting to our office for these patients, and it typically happens to somebody who is 35 to 65, so they're very often working jobs, taking care of children. It's a little challenging to get into our clinic. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And then do you find that in general they do well with home exercise program? Is there, for instance, in the clinic you might focus on the platform perturbations and then what would be an example of something that they follow through with at home? Well, one of the things that I've had some success with recently is putting them on a WeFit platform mm -hmm. because now they are using their vision to follow something that's on the screen that isn't necessarily reflected about their stability, and it's a very um, active visual target. So you're really pulling the visual reference out and then pushing the vestibular um, reference to the somatosensory reference because they're on a flat surface and they're moving on top of that. Mm -hmm. And that might be something that I would suggest that people do at home because so many people have access to the Wii. Mm -hmm. um, then we just we do a lot of settling. Um, otherwise, I have people do things like jumping rope with their eyes closed, again, to try to activate the Golgi tendon apparatus, the stretch reflexors in the muscles, in addition to getting that reference through their somatosensory mm. system. Mm. If you think about one of the things that happens when that drives this is the fact that people are in a situation where their somatosensory referencing is incorrect. So on a boat, on a train, on an airplane, the somatosensory system is the least useful reference. So it's almost as if we have to train that back in once they land back on the ground. Mm -hmm. Basically to teach the system that the surface is now the appropriate reference or one of them. That's the theory. Mm -hmm. And I think that that's why, if you read the literature, when they talk about using vestibular rehabilitation as a treatment tool, the efficacy is very low mm -hmm. because it's not the vestibular system that needs to be worked. And so if you put them, if you train them on an uneven surface, or something where the brain will automatically go back to the vestibular system, then they're not going to feel better when they get on back onto a firm surface. Mm -hmm. So we don't use foam. We, you know, we're we're pushing toward the somatic sensation, not away from it. Right. So how do you measure change or outcomes or decide on discharge? Are these people that it's pretty much symptom-driven, so you know when they feel better they're done with you, or do you have any other I benchmarks? I, I think that it's very symptom-driven. Mm -hmm. And because we are in an outpatient setting, typically when the patients feel good, they just stop scheduling appointments with us. Mm -hmm. So they... Because this is these are people who are not losing their balance. They're not having vestibular problems. So it's mostly just how they feel in their daily routine. Mm -hmm. So they, I would say, mostly just discharge them, themselves as they start to feel better. Mm -hmm. And have you found a link between 
um, maybe number of days on a cruise to duration of symptoms if they do have this syndrome, for instance, a one-day cruise, they resolve sooner than a seven-day cruise or any kind of rules of thumb regarding duration of symptoms when they're treated appropriately? Well, I think that the um, what I've seen in the literature primarily is um, that this that the onset can be varied. So it can be two hours, two days, um, but usually what we see, because people go on a cruise typically for five to seven to ten days, mm-hmm. that that's, we see it most often coming after that. Mm-hmm. And then are these generally people who had some kind of um, anti-motion medication while they were on the trip, or since these are people that tend to not be sick on the trip, but after. <laughs> so I guess my question is, are these people who take Dramamine when they're on the boat or scopolamine, or do you have any um, kind of commonalities in that regard? You know, we don't. That's actually a very good question. Um, sometimes, it, but I don't know if any more than in our general vestibular um, population, there are very many of our patients who come in and say, you know, I never liked riding in the car. I didn't, mm. you know, I I had motion sickness. So these are people who don't necessarily have motion sickness, and that's mm. why they're so surprised when they come back mm-hmm. and get on the ground, and that's when their symptoms start. So I don't, I don't know that there is any link. And mm. what we know is that taking um, scopolamine or meclizine is ineffective, and the only, what has appeared to be the most effective is the benzodiazepines hmm. or um, amitriptyline. And that, I think, also may be because it's allowing some reworking or inhibition um, at the level of the brain stem. Hmm. And you're speaking of these medications after the fact, after they have MDDS. Right. Correct, to That's help correct. with the symptoms, yeah. Um, general as far as I know, okay. there's nothing that you can take before you go. Right. We have patients who ask us if they should then um, not go on cruises or in our environment um, people go whitewater rafting. And I have a patient who goes every year, and she comes into our clinic, and she does a lot of vestibular work, a lot of somatosensory work, before she goes, and that mm. seems to help um, stave that off. But there's nothing mm. that I've ever seen um, regarding that in the literature. Mostly they just say that vestibular rehab is not effective. Right, right, interesting. How long, kind of what time frames for resolution of symptoms have you seen? Would you say some people recover within a week, others take? six months, is there a particular time frame? I would say six months is most likely. Yeah. Um, because the people who come to see us are those people who fit into that two to five year category, typically, so they've had this for a long time. Mm-hmm. So I think that we're spending a lot of time and effort trying to get that whole system recalibrated. Mm-hmm. And I think when when I think about 
full recalibration from most of these perspectives, I think about six months. Mm -hmm. We would see a change at six weeks, probably three months, Mm -hmm. that they may be able to manage their symptoms, but I think that typically they don't go away for about six months. Mm -hmm. And generally, which factors tend to contribute to a better outcome for complete resolution of symptoms and maybe those certain patient presentations that have a poorer outcome. You know, you did allude to the anxiety factors and frustration and um, that kind of thing. Do you find there are certain things that prognostically you feel a lot better about when a patient comes to the table um, with those factors versus you don't feel as good about their prognosis? Well, if you look back at the literature, when I started looking at this probably 20 years ago, um, Malde de Barkmont was in the psychogenic literature. Hmm. It's clearly been stated since then that it isn't a psychogenic disorder. However, people do say they feel crazy. They feel because this is such a bizarre sensation for them because mm-hmm. it's not vertigo. People can understand vertigo. So what I what what I'm concerned about is anything that they have that may already represent a change of pathway within the brainstem. So people who already who have migraine headaches, that's a brainstem phenomenon, people who have post-traumatic stress disorder, people who have panic disorder already, mm-hmm. all of those things that kind of get processed through the brainstem that's the trigger for me to say I may need some extra help on this or Mm -hmm. we need to really work on this and um, bring it forward slowly so that we don't trigger a panic response at the same time that we're trying to um, treat the maladaptive bark Mm -hmm. Mm mom. And um, are there certain patients that walk through the door that you you listen to their history and you think, oh, great, I know this person is really going to be able to recalibrate and they'll be better um, relatively soon? Are there certain factors that that point to a really golden prognosis? Well, I think it's probably length of time. Mm -hmm. You know, we look at secondary behaviors always in our clinic, you know, Mm -hmm. how Easily are they stirred up during the testing? Um, do they describe things in an odd way? Um, so I think that there certainly are points in the history. If somebody already has a compulsive disorder um, background, for example, and, and you get their dizziness handicap inventory and they've written all over the page, then my first thought is, this is a patient under any circumstance is going to be a little bit more hard to treat mm-hmm. because the just because of the brain referencing that needs to happen mm-hmm. in order to get better. Mm-hmm. And I think that that's something that you know that underlying psychiatric phenomenon in here, even though it's not a part of the diagnosis, certainly can impede our progress, but mm-hmm. I think that's true of a lot of the other disorders that we see. Right. Right. Well, um, I want to thank you very much, Kenda, for joining us today, and I have no other questions. Um, feel free to 
to give us any additional information. Okay. Um, the, I guess the first thing that I would say is if you're interested in finding out more about this, um, Dr. Timothy Hain, H-A-I-N, probably has the most um, literature that you can find. Um, I found an article in the Archives of Otolaryngology, Head and Neck Surgery from June of 1999. That is volume 125, number 6. And the title is Malde de Barkmont. So his objective here is really to define it So in order to understand the etiology. Mm -hmm. So that's, a, I think, a good place to go if you don't understand the phenomenon. And if you have specific questions, um, feel free to contact me. I am at Kenda, K-E-N-D-A, at southvalleypt.net. So, and our website is southvalleypt.com. So you're, anyone would be welcome to contact me if they had further questions or um, concerns about anything that I said today. Great. Thank you again so much, Kenda, and thank you to our listeners. Um, on behalf of the Vestibular Special Interest Group of the Neurology Section of the APTA, I thank you for tuning in, and please continue to tune in to our future monthly podcasts. Have a good day. Thank you.